Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of November 2020 and this is episode 184. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Dr Barbara Walsh about her recent book on Irish servicewomen during the Great War. This is published by Pen and Sword. Barbara spoke to me over the phone from her home in Kildare. Hi Barbara, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Right, it's lovely to talk to you, uh, Tom. Um, well, when I gained a postgraduate degree in history, um, I'd already had a very long career in another, other, uh, uh, other, no, there you go. Um, and uh, I'd already had um, a very long career in media and writing. And people kept asking me to write their histories. So I kind of was partially trained by the time I hit the history department in Lancaster. Anyway, um, that was all 20 years ago when I got my degree. And since then, I've concentrated on doing um, neglect talks on different things just that grabbed my interest. But oddly enough, the Great War hadn't um, occurred to me because as I grew up, I'm of a generation that had uh, close, very close relatives who served in the Great War. And of course, I grew up listening to all their stories, um, uh, mostly funny ones, uh, about their life in, in the army, the male and female relatives. So I was fairly prime about topic. But when I came to look, about six years ago, I suppose, I came to look at what was written um, about the Great War and in the Irish historical context. And I found there was a couple of what I'd call gaping void because the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or WAC they were known, are never mentioned and people here don't know about them. And the other void I, I found was that overall there was very little ever spoken about signal women. And they were played a quite a crucial part in the final years of the war. But I'll talk to you later about that. So why do you think your book's important? Well, I suppose apart from the, those two points, I really wanted to hear more about the rank of file, because a lot of the memoirs that have been published, they came from the uh, the upper class aristocracy and, and uh, relative to um, the military who'd founded the corps, and I wanted to hear the old girl talk. So I started to um, dig into their army files, which are very accessible now online, and um, I wanted to open the doors for further uh, further research by people who are looking up their family histories. You know, there's photos and letters and diaries and even meds, which are often, often thought to be belong to the male members of a family. So in the book, I do uh, cite plenty of sources and plenty of ways where people can look things up for themselves. And I'd love people to go ahead and do that. Before we start, what exactly was the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps? Right. Well, they came into being in February um, 1917. And the problem was that in 1970, there'd been such an awful lot of men on the front that things were very they were very short of men and they were very short also and very in very dire straits over their lines of communication which comes to my signal women which I'll talk about in a minute so they approached the post office GPO the post office and they approached the uh, people who were running all these voluntary aid detachments known as the VAB and they approached the women's legion and they said look can't we form an army corps of women and they wanted it really under the auspices of 
of the military, of the army council. Within a few weeks and months since after 1917, they got it going, and it was founded in February 1917, and they were strictly under the control of the army council. And um, they were asked to enrol at first just for a year, but then that changed because they decided they wanted them longer, and they had to stay for the duration, which didn't always go down very well, I can tell you. But on the other hand, the whole corps, by the time the war was over, they'd actually got 57,000 women to join up, and 9,000 actually were from uh, behind the line in, in about six or seven bases, which included general headquarters. So how many Irish women uh, joined the service? Well, they drew them from every part of uh, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and um, the problem is that the records that survived um, are very few, because in the Second World War, the bulk of all the, those 57,000 army records were destroyed, so there's only 7,000 left. But fortunately, when you go looking, you can find over 400 who, who say they were born in Ireland. And uh, uh, probably, maybe, uh, probably quite a lot more than that, because it depended on how they were listed as their, their place of birth. And But these these records are mainly for the lower ranks. Well, that suited my, my project. But you can also find out about them in medalists and in their own uh, old comrade association and in post office archives. So the, the amount of um, girls born in Ireland, of course, you must remember there's quite a lot of them had families who had actually moved to England. And But the links were very strong between the Irish the English, the Irish in England and the Irish at home. So why did they enlist? Well, of course, for women who'd seen their men going out, their, their husbands, fiancés, their brothers, their cousins. It was heartbreak because so many were coming home, wounded, and coming home, or not coming home. And, um, you know, it, it, they just wanted them home. It had been done on too long. And, of course, um, if they thought they could do something about it, they were keen to join. And there was also something that shouldn't be forgotten, is that the nationalist force, people looking for independence in Ireland, um, they had been promised that they'd get home rule at, when the war was over. So there's quite a substantial amount of nationalists who were keen to get their men off right, end the war, and then get the political situation sorted out. And I would think this, it's a bit like nowadays. They just want the war over. They wanted to go back to normal. And of course, normal was case in the end. So let's turn to the work of the WAX. What exactly did they do? And you also mentioned something about signals work. Could you tell me about that as well? Yes, well, the, the kind of work they did was everything they did. Um, and they're listed in the book very carefully in different sections. They were clerk and office workers. They were cook caterers, cleaners. They were uh, drivers. Well, these were the upper class girls who could drive motor cars because not many girls in those days could drive a car. And then there were the signal women. And these were GPO girls who were asked to be sent on loan to the Royal Engineers because the, the army line communication those days were all by wire. And of course, it was, it was, they were the high tech girls of their era, actually. And not many people knew as much as them as how the system worked and how they, how they could go about uh, keeping these lines of communication uh, going for the, for the army generals, keeping touch at the front. Now, they were trained, of course, to list for fault up to coming in or breaking in on the line. And um, they were also um, very high security uh, situation because they actually heard and saw everything. And of course, 
even in civilian life, they were bound by uh, the act of uh, the Sikhi Act. Um, they, they were very, very trustworthy and they never said a word, even after the war, about what they had heard and what was going on. Uh, there's a great story actually in the book about how useful they were. And this was when in 1918, uh, there, was, um, there was a, a crisis. The army, the the German army was about to break through. General headquarters had to be uh, abandoned. They all went back, waved back behind the line safety. And the only people that were left were the 142 signalers, all women, because they had to in order to keep uh, maintain communication between the battlefront and the GHQ. And and afterwards they were they were praised for their duty. And and the, and the problem is when they stayed in places like that, uh, you know, under fire, not exactly on fire, but in danger. Um, sometimes uh, some of the younger officers said, oh, they should be mentioned in dispatches. But the answer came back, oh, we don't praise our men for staying on team. We're going to, not going to, to treat these women any differently. So they really were very valuable in the whole uh, outcome of the war. I just wondered whether you could explain what they did, because I think a lot of people with mobile telephones nowadays won't um, understand what these women were doing in in essentially what which, which was essentially what, sorry, start again i wonder if you could explain what they were doing because i think with mobile technology today people won't really understand how they functioned within the telephone exchange yes you see, it was all physical very physical work and the great thing about it was they uh, the, the telegraphs had to be punched by hand which was hard physical work and the um the actual telephone lines they uh, physically linked one wire to another wire and they had no we got every wire went into it. it was very complicated and quite physical and the the thing about it is that when we're in the signal call, all these girls uh, worked side by side with their male colleagues in the Royal Engineers. And actually, very uniquely, they actually wore the same armband men, which was blue and white, to show they were actually in equal starters with. And for security reasons, they had to be kept well away from all the other work. But it was hard physical work. And as one uh, army man once uh, wrote about, he said the hours they, they, they worked were staggering, even for war time because they wore, had 24 hour uh, day uh, shifts of about 10 hours and they worked seven days a week. So what was the experience of women who served in the WAC during war? Well um, it was tough work. Uh, the rules were very strict. They were like uh, army men. Um, they had to, if they left camp, they had to have hats. They were fined if they broke any rule, if they didn't have a proper uniform or if they were late. And they sometimes lost lost privileges. And um, if there was air raids, they had to put on tin hats and go in trenches and they had air raid drills. And, and you know, they were treated exactly like soldiers, except that the army somehow did recognize them as, as they didn't give them proper titles. They did call them corporals, privates, or officers. They had their own height. But on the same level, they really were working side by side with all men. And did they get paid the same as, as, as their male counterparts? Well, well they pay good and now I can't tell you whether it was exactly the same it certainly wasn't a shilling a day I don't think but um, certainly the officers and they got their, uh, were paid at 150 quid a year which was quite substantial and the girls usually about two pounds um, I think a week but that was quite a lot in those days compared to what they could earn um, in civilian life so they were well treated from a wages point of view now what happened to the Irish women who joined the WAC when they came back to Ireland. Obviously, the political situation in Ireland in 1918-1919 became quite serious and, and evolved into, into what is known as the War of Independence. And how were they treated as former British service personnel? Well, of course, the family 
families, their, their own families were delighted to see them, Hannah, and there was no problem. But, and at first, I think, they were accepted okay. But then gradually, as the political situation, as you say, changed, they began to get some sort of disapproval. I felt they were somehow um, disloyal or that. And, and actually, um, there again, there was, um, there, there's a, a, a story about one girl, and she came, very, very sad, very poignant uh, story. And she came from Kildare, and obviously was very keen on her horses, but both her brothers and the fiance had all killed in the war. And she was so heartbroken by the less than the sympathetic attitude of her neighbour that she sold up her farm after a year or so and sold her horses. And she set off for Australia, where she built a new life for herself, where she could ride her horse in peace and not have disproving neighbours look on it. And I thought that was very poignant. And there were a lot of others, of course, who just were restless um, after being uh, what they called the glamour of being a of, of glamour of the army and having seen a lot of Europe and uh, I had one girl who wanted to explore different parts of the globe and she set off and she ended up in Canada so there's a great number of them who, who had to migrate and couldn't settle but they were very forceful girls and very resourceful and very enterprising. So how did the Irish members of the WAC commemorate celebrate and remember their service during the Great War? Right well after the war things were fairly settled economically of course it was dire the 20s uh, when they went back if they if they had jobs go back to and there was quite a lot of labor but um, um they kind of got kept their friendships of course because they were friends with everybody they'd all been mixed together and um by 1926 in dublin the, a, a branch of the old comrades association was uh, formed and they did a lot of um, very discreet um, help um, offered help to girls who might be in difficulties or have illnesses and uh, they kept the their friendship going and also the Old Comrade Association helped those who migrated abroad and they kept in touch with newsletters so it was like a, a friendly society that they kept together after the war and in fact by 1939 when the, the Second World War uh, broke out there was quite a few Irish women who rushed up immediately to join the new um, ATS which was being formed because they could offer advice and, uh, for the next generation And finally Bobber where can people learn more about your, your work and also get the book in the run-up to Christmas. Right. Well, um, it's out, uh, published by uh, Penn Sword, uh, who are in Yorkshire, and the title, I'll give you the title again, it's Irish Served Women in the Great War, From Western Front to Roaring Twenties. Barbara, thank you very much for your time. Not at all, it's a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>